Welcome to the Lemon Spark Podcast, where we share stories about lemons that spark a new direction in life. I'm your host, Barbara Zabala. Well, welcome Nancy Novak to the Lemon Spark Podcast. I'm so glad that you agreed to join me. Nancy is the founder of Nancy's List, which is a list of resources for people living with cancer. Resources run the gamut from financial to hope and gratitude type resources to therapy type resources. And she'll talk more about that list and how it came to be. But Nancy, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. And and we've waited a while to get this together. And I'm really happy we're doing it today. I was diagnosed on April 29th, 2004 with stage four ovarian cancer. And I thought I had appendicitis. So I knew nothing about cancer. So I went to see my internist and she examined me and sent me immediately off to a, for a CAT scan. And I didn't know what a CAT scan was. Came back and she said, you want the good news or the bad news? I said, the good news. She said, you don't have appendicitis. I said, wow, that's great. I'm going to go off to LA today. I was living in Northern California. And she said, do you want the bad news? And I said, no. She said, well, here's the bad news. You have stage four ovarian cancer. And your liver is, is metastasized to your liver and it's two times the size it's allowed to be, more like a small watermelon. And your right ovaries is the size of a grapefruit. But little did I know at that moment that they always talk about tumors in the size of fruits. So I said, now, I said to her two things, which now are remarkable, like, oh, thank goodness it's not appendicitis. What's stage five? And that was the beginning. So I was swept away and taken down to Stanford where I was to meet the man who was going to save my life. And I walked into the comprehensive cancer center and I couldn't breathe. And that moment defined and changed my life forevermore. So we were in the room and in a little while, this man walked in who looked a lot like Santa Claus. I said, and I'm a little embarrassed how I said it, like, who in the world are you? because I had experienced a whole lot of punching and probing that afternoon. And he said, I'm your, I'm your doctor. And in that room, as well as my family and friends, were a bunch of people sharpening scalpels, it seemed to us. They were the surgeons waiting for directions. And he looked at them and he said, Nancy's too sick for surgery. We're starting chemo right now. And then he said to me, yours is a very bleak, diagnosis. And it's going to be a really challenging prognosis, but I think I can help you. And I'm with you. And everybody in the room heard those four words. And there was sort of this communal sigh and tears. And those four words still resonate in my heart. It was like, it's almost to me, someone saying I'm with you is more powerful than anything. Like, I love you. That's nice. I am with you was a big statement. And he proved to be totally with me. In fact, then he says something that still blows my mind. He said, when all your friends and family go home and you're here by yourself in this beautiful room at Stanford and you start flipping out about what happened to you today, I want you to call me and here's my home number. That doesn't usually happen in the medical world. And I called him at 2.30 in the morning. And he was as gracious and generous in that moment, in that phone call, than as he always was. He was always just totally real, totally with me. You know, he'd be teaching in Croatia where he was originally from, 
but he would stay on top of my case. And this was when they were talking about a liver transplant and he on the phone all the time with me and with the, stat, the team that was taking care of me. It was always there. And I think one of the, how you turn lemons into lemonade part was all my sort of uh, bad things I could say about the medical world changed in this experience with this man. I totally trusted him with my life. And I often say to the people that I serve, the people that I work with who have cancer, if you don't trust the person who's taking care of you, then find another doctor because this is a relationship that has to be based on honesty and trust. There are plenty of intelligent, brilliant doctors out there, but please find one that you trust. So I think also having trust with him was a big awakening. It was a new way of thinking of so many things. And I just, I just fell in love with all the nurses and all everybody who was taking care of me. And I just experienced so much generosity of strangers were so, so caring. And I think that the breakthrough for me is that my heart started to open big and fat. He also said to me, my, my lovely oncologist is, if you're not on the antidepressants, get on them. And if you're on them, double them and find yourself a psychologist, preferably one who has lived through cancer because you're gonna have a hard time and you need all the support in the world. That doesn't happen very often in the real world. The doctors really are set up to take care of you and heal your body. He was one of the rare people who understood the emotional component of healing and it served me well. So you took his advice. Are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm I'm wondering because you're a psychologist yourself. So I was wondering. Oh my God, we're the ones who need it. (laughs) 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 We need just a lot of there. And, you know, because cancer is unique in, in some ways, but it's also, it's also similar in the ways that we all experience trauma. And it's all these uncontrolled, complicated emotions are going on. Not to say only that your family, who's fearing for your life, gets to be painful sometimes to listen to them sort of eulogizing you when you're, you're not ready for that. In trauma, you're flooded with emotions, and then within five seconds, you're completely numb. And that you can flip back and forth so quickly and you lose your balance and you lose your sense of reality and you get carried away into the future of what's, what's next, what's going to happen. And so much uncertainty. So I, I did, I worked with somebody a lot. I also had the blessings to meet a woman named Rachel Riemann. And I don't know if you know her work, but anyone and everyone should. And these books are always on my bedside. She wrote two wonderful books. She's a doctor. She's worked with a lot of doctors to try to help them to become human beings. But she wrote this book, Kitchen Table Wisdom. Rachel Riemann, is it spelled R-E-M-E-N? Yeah. R-E-M-E-N? Mm-hmm. Okay. The other one that's lovely is uh, My Grandfather's Blessings. So I actually went to a seminar she was giving because I was getting continuing education hours. And that's why I went. And I thought I'd love to be around this woman who's elegant and eloquent and has such great, great presence. And I realized within five seconds that I was not there for that. I was there to refine and define really my relationship to having cancer. My understanding was it wasn't something I was going to battle and I was going to fight the warrior game. It was something I was going to learn to live with. Then I was going to go through many, many, many months of being so focused on my survival 
but I had to learn how to live with this new person who was going to go through fire and come out on the other side. And what was I going to do with that piece of my life? So Rachel, Rachel talks a lot about the will to live. And I think that when people ask me, why did you make it? And so many other people don't. And did you sit under a lotus blossom tree? And it was none of that. You know, I think it was I had all the components right in place. Someone who was teaching me about the will to live and focusing on courage and resilience and gratitude and welcoming this experience rather than running away from it. I had no choice. That's what I had to do. Mm-hmm. But it was sort of thing about why do people have a will to live? Where is it you're born with it? Do you cultivate it? Is it my job as a therapist to encourage people to have courage and to have to strengthen their will? And what happens when it breaks down? What do you do? What, do you, what tools do you have to bring it back into your being? So that was very, very powerful work. She always talked about being open to possibility. You're talking about Rachel. Yeah. She was my mentor. She was my, (laughs) she held my hand in my heart. She was wonderful. And it was like, what does it mean to be open to possibility? It's not the doom and gloom scenario. It's like open the possibility I might get through this. So let's talk about that or open the possibility to what am I getting out of? Why am I here now? What did I do wrong, you know, to get me here? what am I going to get from this? And what am I going to bring to my life? What is that all about? And that's really powerful. Because I, for me, when I started Lemon Spark, one of the things that I had in, in my mind was that a lot of people who were going through a traumatic event, like you reached a stage in their grieving process of when they started to ask, why did this happen to me? What did I do wrong in my life or some past life <laughs> that I ended up here? And you're saying that Rachel was saying, don't ask that question. Ask, what can I learn from this? Mm-hmm. That's, that's really powerful. And it's really important because, it, you know, you can get stuck. And mm-hmm. that's sometimes the way therapy is helpful to get you unstuck. So you had basically told yourself that I am learning to live with this because of the long road ahead. It helped you to maintain that balance or achieve that balance by reframing your existences, learning to live with it, as opposed to I'm going to survive or get through this. You are learning to, you do have to, because it's always on your shoulder. There's always the possibility that the next test doesn't come out as great as you want, you know, and then are you back into, I mean, the miracle of my story is that I've never had a recurrence, which is very unusual. I never had to have that great, big, horrible operation. I did a laparoscopy to remove my ovaries and tubes about two years into it. And that's not exactly what's the typical experience. And because it's always recurrences are not, or something that are, have a bad name, just like Varian has a really bad reputation, but um, they have a bad name. And you're just always worried if that it's going to come back within the first couple of years. And then you start all over with this, you know, treatment, which is not simply inconvenient, it's unpleasant in many, many ways. And I mean, I did things that people thought were really unusual, but they worked for me. It's about myself, about six pair of silk pajamas. So I would have outfits. I bought all these fabulous wigs. I gave parties at my house. I just, I wanted to be surrounded with good energy. 
And if there were people that weren't going to give that to me, sayonara, you know, it's I worked it. I knew what I needed. Not everybody needs to have that. But I remember I gave myself a birthday party six months into it. And I'm wearing an orange wig. And, you know, it's just like I played a little bit with it, which took the edge off of what other people don't know what to do with you. Yeah, playing with it, giving yourself permission to do something different of that that I could see how that might help cope the bad news. And it's not to say that I went smooth, you know, it was a smooth ride. I mean, I had lots of complications and lots of very tough things. But and one of the things you do in therapy, or I used to do with my people, is think as if I could wake up and I'd be bad mood and I'd think, okay, think as act as if you are going to get through this with better or something. Just give yourself motivation, do whatever it takes. I had great things happen. I mean, people volunteered. This health club in Marin sent me a yoga teacher three times a week to come and just do yoga at home with me. And sometimes I wasn't strong enough to do yoga. And she said, I'm in Beth, and we do breathing exercises. And that was very, very special. People want to help. People just don't know exactly. So you got to come up with a list of all the things you want them to do. Like people ask me, what did I learn about myself during cancer? And I thing I do know about the future is as soon as you're out of treatment, everybody thinks you're well. They don't bring the tuna casseroles anymore. And they, you know, they, they move on to somebody else because you're, you're fine. I found out in a lot of ways, I had more grace in going through this than I ever knew about. I had more courage and I felt braver that I, I can do this. I, you know, I talked myself into it. <laughs> Just did that. I talk people into it all the time in therapy. I pretty much ignored the noise. I mean, I, I could hear the noise, but I totally ignored it. And I was aware of what in control of and what I was not in control of. So I yeah. stayed with what I was in control of. And I spent time sometime at night just thinking of all the reasons I wanted to live. It's my children. And now I have grandchildren. You know, it's like these were calling to me that I needed, I needed this. I knew I had a purpose and I didn't know then what it was. So I feel like I wanted to be a better therapist than I probably am because I know what my, my people are going through, whether it's a cancer story or it's some other traumatic experience. I think I found an extraordinary amount of generosity around me. I called them the angels in my midst. And they just showed up and they just were so good. And I always know I want to be that angel to other people. Do you ever have a moment where there was a spark, uh, an idea, a revelation that maybe answered that question, why did this happen to me? Sort of began to know, you know, I think we're segueing into that. I spent a lot of time in the infusion room getting a lot of chemo. And whenever I had the opportunity, I wanted to talk to the people that were also on this cancer journey. Mm -hmm. And I invited them to tell me their stories. I was so surprised. They didn't talk about their fear of living and dying. They talked about their concern about money and that they didn't have enough, but they didn't have enough money for the meds. So they didn't tell their doctors that they didn't have money. In fact, they made choices whether I put food on the table or whether I buy my meds and I choose food for my family, but I don't tell my doctor I don't take the meds. This got to be really amazing to me this was so pervasive in their lives and and we were they were very open they, i mean we were sharing a very intimate space you know as they're talking about money and money's emotional anyway so is this because they didn't have insurance or their insurance wasn't covered well, i had a, i had fancy ppo and it cut my they didn't cover about two hundred fifty thousand dollars of my care 
which I was responsible for. So they call it financial toxicity, which is a horrible word in my mind, but so many people go bankrupt who have cancer. So much is not covered. And it's like, you might be qualified for one CAT scan every six months, but an emergency situation goes in on the third month, you're going to take the CAT scan. You're going to pay out of pocket. So this was really, really getting to me when I was talking to these people and I was just like in America and they thought that if they told the doctors that they were doing this, that the doctors wouldn't take care of them anymore. One man, this is when it really got me. One man told me he was considering suicide because he was such a financial burden to his family. And I was very moved and shaken by all this. And I knew that the money was out there. I just knew it. And I made a vow that when I get out of this place, I'm going to find the money. And I'm going to make everyone who's involved in the cancer world at least know where the resources are and make it accessible to these people that I've been talking to for two years. And that's when I created Nancy's List. 2006, right when I finished up my treatment, I started, I got a 501c3 status and started just launching a website, which was only going to be at that point, just a list where the money is. And I wanted everyone to know about it because it seemed so obvious that this stress about money was not helping their healing. And I just went all out. I just just did a lot of research. Uh, I talked to thousands of people. This is used by many patients as well as practitioners and nurse navigators and financial counselors around the country and most of the hospitals around the country. And I broke it down by specific populations like African-Americans and Asian-Americans and all that. And I broke it down further by categories like their camps, they're the most amazing camps for kids and teens and young adults and their families all over this country. They're totally free to these families. So I broke it down there with wish fulfillment and food and general living expenses. There's a group called Cleaning for a Reason who will clean house once a month while that person's going through treatment for free, but you got to find it. There's so much medication assistance that those people at Stanford did not have to worry about paying for meds, but nobody told them that. Well, did they know? Do you think anyone at Stanford? Yeah, there was social workers in all over the place, but no one came to my door and said, I'm a social worker or I'm a financial counselor. How can I help you? And do you think that doctors that you were working with or that any of these patients were working with, like the oncologists, had any idea that a lot of the treatments were not covered by insurance? You know, I don't know. For example, I mean, there are nurse practitioners running all over the place, you know, that possibly could, I mean, if you were given the choice, are you going to take the treatment knowing you don't have the money? I mean, these are very expensive treatments. The medication I had to take when my thing was so high was $160 a shot. And I had to shoot myself up twice a day for 10 days after every chemo to boost my white cell count. But I had to pay for that. So this is something that needs awareness to this issue because this is really stopping people getting the healthcare they need. And that's why I'm really, of all the things when I think, I think my purpose, although I'd love to do something else, is really getting financial information out there. In COVID, I realized, oh my God, all these people are so vulnerable anyway. They're really vulnerable with COVID. So I went and found all these financial resources to help these people through the COVID 
experience and many, many foundations and many corporations who were giving out money to cancer people. So that they're all listed on the website too. And I broke it down as to types of cancer. So like breast cancer is a really long list <laughs> of financial resources and don't all have that kind of support. But, and then I gave uh, tips from survivors. I asked everybody who's on my subscribes to Nancy's list to tell me what they did to help deal with financial crisis that they were going through. It's not a secret society that everybody knows this. It's just like people don't know where to find it. So you created a hub. Nancy's List really is like a hub of resources for people who have cancer or have family members maybe who have cancer to go to to find all kinds of different types of help and support, a lot of it being financial support so that they can take advantage of those resources that are out there. In my ideal world, the patient doesn't do the work. We know when everybody says, how can I help? You find somebody who actually knows how to deal with a bank account or whatever, who's in charge of finding out what your insurance does or doesn't cover, who can, who can find out if you are qualified for disability or who can pay your bills or who can do all the financial end of it. And this is not what the patient should be focused on. But I also think, and everyone said this on their tip, there's a social worker in every hospital, at least one or maybe 10. There are financial counselors there. Those people call me and ask me, what are you, what can I do for so-and-so, you know, because I, <laughs> wow, <laughs> this is just like not okay in this country at all. And then there's another part of it that I, I really like. It's all about integrative therapies. And I have a huge listing, probably a thousand people on that right now, uh, people all over this country and, and internationally who provide everything from acupuncture and oncology massage and skincare specialists and all kinds of services. Now, some of these people can work for free or they give discounts if that comes through Nancy's list, but there are all kinds of people, cancer fitness programs. It's an amazing community of generous people. So I feel really blessed that I found my calling. You know, <laughs> it was a big surprise, but I feel like I, I can't quit. This is my one woman show and it's demanding in lots of ways, but I, I feel good about it. Is this what you do full time? <laughs> so you, you, you operate Nancy's List full time. Yeah. And then one day I decided <laughs> I'd write a book. And remember if I told you that my doctor said to me, I am with you. Yes. So the title of the book is I am with you. Love letters to cancer patients. This I think is one of the most valuable things that we've done. But the intention is it's not my book. It's my book with 42 men and women who are caregivers and survivors. And we are writing to people who are nearly newly diagnosed. These are just letters of support and come on, let's kick ass together. First night I was there when I had to call my doctor. Like I needed someone to ground me and keep me on this earth because I was just like, what? So oftentimes hospitals will buy the books to put in the new patient packets. Oh, very nice. Put them on their bedstands when they get diagnosed. So it gets out there and it's, it's so beautiful and some of it's funny, but it's like, it's what you wanted to hear that you're not alone. Yes. Well, and that's one of the three pillars of Lemon Spark is, you know, that you are not alone, that 
there's a community right. of people out there. You just have to find mm. it. If, if someone wanted to purchase your book, uh, what is it, the title? It's I'm with you, love letters. With you, love letters to cancer patients. It's on Amazon. It's cheaper if you do it with me. So we'll give them the website. And yeah. it's really a beautiful book. Like one woman wrote me, she said, I just carry it with me all the time because if I ever feel weepy, I just read one of those stories. So it's a collection from 42 people who know well what they're talking about. Some of them are famous. Some of them are not pretty much in their own voices. I had to do some editing on some of them, but basically I didn't. And it's also a wonderful book for friends to give a, someone who's been diagnosed. You know, I just want them out there. I mean, I, we put them in the waiting rooms and doctor's offices and they just take them home. How can people find you and the book? Um, where, what's your website? Nancy's List, N-A-N-C-Y-S, LAST.org. Uh, you're also a 501c3, I think I heard mm-hmm. you say. Mm-hmm. So if people wanted to donate, they could donate to Nancy's List. Right. It's on the website too, how to do okay. that easily. And that would be appreciated because we have a lot more work to do. Yes. Well, it sounds like you've become sort of an authority in resources that are available for people with all kinds of different cancer. And you've also produced this book, created this book, which is a, sounds like an incredible resource for people who are in that very scary place yeah. to know yeah. that they're not alone. And that's, yeah, that's just so crucial, I think, to getting through difficult times like, like that. Someone said to me, who said she read the whole book cover to cover just one night, she couldn't stop. And she said, this isn't about cancer. This is about how to live your life. Oh, wow. That's quite a compliment Yeah, that it, it transcends the cancer. So anyone who maybe is just struggling with feeling like they're alone, they're struggling with a, a traumatic event of any sort might benefit. Yeah. And I think, you know, what my sense and my purpose with that was healing starts the minute you're diagnosed, you know, the worst words you'll hear are not the worst, maybe, but pretty bad. You have cancer. And that's when you stand on the book, you know, it's like the healing has to start then. So that's why I wanted to get this into the hands of people who are just hearing the bad news, you know, and so it's something that your companion, when you feel weepy, you got your companion right there to help you get through it. So I'm real proud of that. I would be too. Well, so I assume that if someone wanted to reach out to you personally, they could contact you through the website as well. Yeah, or my email is I'm always available and I'm always here at nancy at nancyslist.org. Just be sure you put the S in after Nancy or it doesn't ever work. Nancy at nancyslist.org. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for sharing your story and for being such a ray of hope and inspiration to a community that definitely uh, needs needs that. So thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Lemon Spark Podcast. If you or someone you know has a Lemon Spark story, please contact us at lemonspark.com and follow Lemon Spark on Facebook for more hope and inspiration. And remember, it's not the lemon that defines you, it's the spark.